Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. I also hope you will join us this Thursday, August 22nd at the Ferndale Public Library at 6 p.m. as we continue the WDET book club discussion of Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. We have spent the summer talking about the Flint water crisis, environmental justice and infrastructure, lots of other issues as well that spring out of that book, that wonderful book by Dr. Mona. Uh, This Thursday, we're going to be joined by ACLU investigative reporter Kurt Guyette, who did some of the early and very critical journalism that exposed the Flint water crisis and got very deeply into its causes and its consequences. We'll also have Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash with us, and he's going to talk about what is going on with water quality uh, and infrastructure in Oakland County. So it should be a really great conversation, and we really hope that you will join us again. Ferndale Public Library, August 22nd, that is tomorrow at 6 p.m. All right. Up first today, uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has been busy as always, uh, doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of work in a lot of different areas here in the state of Michigan. Uh, she joins us now, as she does each month, to catch us up on what she has been up to. Dana, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks for having me back again, Stephen. Sure. So it was uh, reported yesterday that you are asking a federal judge to dismiss a Republican lawsuit against Michigan's new redistricting commission. Uh, Tell us about that lawsuit and why you've asked the judge to dismiss it. Well, it's it's, um, sort of a a peculiar set of circumstances, only in that uh, Judge Neff, who this case has been assigned to in the Western District of Michigan, uh, she requires you to file, basically file a, a request to file a motion. So it wasn't actually a motion. It was our request to file such a motion uh, to have the lawsuit um, dismissed. And so we are hoping that she'll grant us that opportunity, and then we'll have a full and complete briefing on all of our reasons. Um, but we, we don't believe that this lawsuit has any true merit. You know, it's, it's just another effort, in my opinion, by the GOP, um, to uh, circumvent what the people obviously very much wanted, Proposal 2 passed um, by 61%. Um, and this is really our only avenue left at this point to ensure that we don't have uh, horrific gerrymandering in this state. Michigan is, is one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. Uh, it's not fair to the voters in the state. They're not properly represented, and they did something about it. So they passed Proposal 2, and we are set to have a redistricting commission uh, in 2022. Um, and we think this is just uh, another effort that we think will be a failed effort uh, to thwart the process of ensuring that every person's vote truly counts. So, so talk about what the, the allegations or I guess the, the, the substantive sort of uh, complaint of this lawsuit is. What is it that Republicans are saying was wrong with Proposal 2 or this new way of dividing up uh, districts here in Michigan? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that they wanted to ensure that, um, you know, you had a certain number of people that were affiliated with, you know, the Republican Party and a certain number of people affiliated with the Democratic Party or third parties, um, and then a number of people who were just nonpartisan. They didn't have any connections to any political parties. Um, and, you know, that, that is done frequently. We have all kinds of um, 
boards and commissions where maybe you'll have two Republicans, you'll have two Democrats, and that's the law. And you're permitted to do that. And those um, types of constructs have been challenged in the past, always unsuccessfully. And we did the same thing here in terms of um, the drafting uh, of Proposal 2 to ensure um, a couple of things. One, that you didn't have one party that was making decisions as to how the districts ought to be char- um, ought to be formulated, um, and that you didn't have really an even number of people on each side so that you were going to be in a deadlock situation. So uh, I think the claim is that it's somehow a First Amendment violation to deny a person the ability uh, to identify with a certain party or have close relatives uh, who identify with a certain party and to not be able to be eligible for certain positions on the commission for that reason. We, we don't think there's merit to this, and we do expect that we'll be successful in this lawsuit um, and that following the 2020 census, uh, this commission will be put in place and be able to finally, fairly uh, draw the districts so that everyone is properly represented in the state. Hmm. Uh, also, you um, last week the Free Press reported that uh, only half of all juvenile lifers in Michigan have been resentenced. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that those sentences are cruel and unusual in 2012 and decided in 2016 that the decision had to be pl- applied retroactively, meaning that people who are in prison who were sentenced uh, to life uh, in prison as juveniles have to get new hearings. Uh, former Attorney General Bill Schuette was someone who was not enthusiastic about this idea, and I, I think it's fair to say he did a, a lot of foot dragging uh, and not, uh, you know, kind of refused to, to, to implement this Supreme Court decision um, why haven't we moved faster since he's been gone? Well, first of all, there have been a number of other cases that have been pending that think have slowed down the process. One of those cases, for instance, was there, there was no groundwork for how these decisions were going to be made. Was this going to be uh, a jury that made this decision? Was it going to be a judge that made this decision? So there were cases like that that had been pending in the Michigan courts, and we were waiting to see how those played out before some of these hearings could even move forward. Uh, so if you didn't have a decision that had been made um, that, you know, where the uh, prosecuting agency was in agreement that the person should be uh, resentenced and it was contested, who was even going to hear the case? So that was something that was just recently decided. And the decision was that a judge would be making that decision and that there wasn't a right to a, a jury um, making the sentencing determination. So that's one of the things that held it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that my office right now, we have, I want to say we have about five of those cases. Some of them came from Oakland County, where um, uh, Prosecutor Cooper had actually been directly involved because she was a judge at the time. And so, of course, there was a conflict of interest there because she was a sentencing judge. And um, so those came to our office. And then we had another couple cases, I think, that had actually been tried by the AG's office. And so we're prepared to um, to indicate what our decisions are on those cases very soon. I think it'll be in the next week or so. And definitely some of those cases we're going to be agreeing that um, uh, resentencing is appropriate. Uh, and in others, uh, we're probably going to say that we're going to need forward, to move forward with a hearing because um, we think that those are sometimes the exceptional cases where a person uh, is just too dangerous and that a life without parole sentence uh, is appropriate. Again, that should be rare. Um, We don't believe it should be every case. We don't believe it should be every other case. But there are times where we really do have to take into consideration the protection of the public 
Um, but I, I think that a lot of those cases are moving forward. The offer that actually, you know, I've made in the past and that um, I'm going to have a, a meeting just this Thursday with the Prosecuting Attorneys Association is that if there are counties that feel as though uh, they just don't have the staff, in order to be able to handle these cases. And that's the reason they're moving so slowly. Remember, these cases have to be completely reinvestigated. Some of these cases are 20, 30, 40 years old. It's very hard to put a case back together after all that time. Sometimes it's hard to even find the files uh, and the the police reports, investigative reports and lab reports and so forth. So um, I've made the, the offer that the Department of Attorney General in Michigan will handle those cases at the request of, of some of these counties that they feel like they just simply lack adequate resources to handle those cases themselves. And hopefully that'll speed the process up. Hmm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, who joins us each month to catch us up on the work that she's doing in Lansing. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. You have a question for the Attorney General about uh, her work in any number of different areas. This is your opportunity to ask. Uh, we were talking just now about uh, resentencing juvenile lifers. Uh, we talked a little about uh, a Republican lawsuit to try to overturn Michigan's efforts to reform uh, redistricting, uh, which will happen after the 2020 census is over. We're going to talk a little bit about the Flint water investigations uh, and the controversy over Civil Rights Department Director Augustin Arbelou. Uh, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, Dana, last time you were on the program, we talked a little about uh, the Flint water investigations that uh, that you were just then uh, restarting. Um, the, the statute of limitations for filing charges in that case is still kind of barreling down on us. It's, you know, um, it, it's not too far off. I wonder if you can give us an update on timing uh, when you think you might know more about uh, whether people will face new criminal charges in that case? Well, well, I, I can say with all confidence that I'll know uh, at the same time that you do, Stephen, because <laughs> I am not on that side of the conflict wall, as we've talked about in the past. Sure. Um, I am on the civil side, so I'm handling the civil cases, some, I think, 79 separate cases that have been filed both in state and federal court. Um, and that's why I appointed my Solicitor General, Fadwa Hamoud, and Wayne County Prosecutor, Kim Worthy, to handle those cases. Um, what I can say, because I've become aware of it um, from representing state agencies, is I know that they continue to execute search warrants. Uh, I know they continue to obtain new information that um, the Office of Special Counsel did not have before. And they have new documents and new devices uh, that they are reviewing. Um, and I imagine that they are, well, I, I know for a fact that they are interviewing uh, witnesses. Uh, some of them, I, I suppose, are witnesses that have already been interviewed. Some of them, I, I, I would guess, are new witnesses. Um, and the reason I know that is because these are witnesses that, that work for state agencies that my office represents. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, the timing, in terms of what charges we can expect to see filed, I can't speak to that because I'm not involved in the criminal investigation, but I trust that 
uh, Solicitor General Hamoud and Prosecutor Worthy are working very diligently um, and uh, that they're determined to ensure justice for the city of Flint. Mm. And and the approaching statute of limitations does not worry you in terms of being able to complete the work on time? Well, I, I think they're going to have to move fast on a number uh, of different potential charges where the statute would run um, I, you know, it, I, it's hard to say because honestly, if I look at it from the outside, and again, that's what I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. but it's understanding that the changeover from the Detroit system uh, to the Flint River occurred in uh, April um, of, of 2014, um, you know, there are things that continued to happen for a long time afterwards. So I'm just going to say if you have a potential charge in, um, of misconduct in office, I'm not saying that anyone will be charged with that. Mm-hmm. But let's say that's a charge you're evaluating, which typically has a six-year statute of limitations. It's for the continuation of when that occurred, not just the day that the water would have been switched over, but during a process of, of time, if there was a cover-up, and I don't know that there was, but let's say that there was, um, and that there were people in uh, state government that knew that um, that the water was dangerous to drink and informed the public otherwise, and as a result, people became sick from drinking that water. Again, these are all allegations that have not been proven or sustained, but those are the allegations, right? Mm. Um, it wouldn't be just that first day. It would be the entirety of the time that that was occurring. Um, so that, I think, would give them even an extra couple years, because that took place over the course of, of quite some time. So... You know, you can't you can't take a specific date and say that is the date that the statute tolls. Um, you have to look uh, at a number of different factors and circumstances. Mm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Stephanie in Detroit. Stephanie, what's on your mind? Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm calling in response to something that Attorney General Dana Nessel just said in regards to juvenile sentences. And my understanding is that the court ruled that it was cruel uh, to sentence juveniles to life in prison. And I don't understand how any of those prisoners serving life sentences as juveniles cannot be reviewed and given a new determination. Because it it sounds like the determination of life is the cruel part for Mm. anyone. So any child. How can we turn to any child in Michigan and say, sorry, you don't get right. out? Uh, Stephanie, it's a great question. Um, uh, uh, Dana, I, I, I remember this case pretty well, um, and I know that there are a number of different uh, things going on there. Can, can you maybe explain to Stephanie and the other listeners how this works and what the court said about life sentences sure. for juveniles? Well, and, and they did say that the cases in which a juvenile should remain, uh, when I say juvenile, of course, a person who was, um, where the offense occurred when the person was a juvenile, meaning under the age of 18, mm-hmm. um, you know, that those should be uh, the exception and not the rule and only exceptional circumstances. But I, I am going to say this. Um, again, I have prosecuted a number of these cases. I've defended a number of these cases. Um, and, and, you know, Stephanie's right. The vast majority of the time, um, you know, these 
individuals should be resentenced to a term of years as opposed to life without parole. But you do have those circumstances, and I have seen them, where you have somebody who, um, because of their behavior, first of all, that the offense is so atrocious um, and so remarkable in terms of the brutality of it, uh, and then you combine that with a person's record while they've been in prison. If you have a person who has been assaultive in prison, they have committed crimes while they're behind bars year after year after year, and you combine that with the fact that you had a very brutal, um, you know, homicide. And, and some of these cases I've seen, I mean, we're talking about uh, people who, who kidnapped someone, tortured them over the course of, of hours or days, um, violently raped them, and then, you know, murdered them in some of the most horrific ways imaginable. And then that person, while they've been behind bars uh, for, for many years, has shown that they continue to be a threat and, in fact, are a threat to other inmates and a threat to uh, the correction officers. Well, you really have to think twice before you resentence that individual when they are a continuing danger uh, to society. Now, that's not most people. It's definitely not going to be most of these individuals. And I have certainly had cases where I represented people that were up before the parole board and they had spent some 25, 35, 45 years in prison. And I can tell you they were very much not the same person at all um, many decades later that they were when they were, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, But some of these folks, I mean, please understand, we do have to evaluate the protection of the public. It is important. And there are rare cases here and there that I am seeing where I am very concerned that if this person ever gets out of prison, they're going to kill again. Now, that's not most people. It's definitely not most people, but it is some of them. So please appreciate that when those rare instances occur, the safety of the public has to be paramount. But it's not going to be most cases. So I agree. Most of the time it shouldn't happen. And we should also be clear that what the court said uh, in Miller, which is the case that that's uh, at play here, is th- they were talking about mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole for juveniles, and and they weren't. I mean, they were talking about, of course, uh, the inappropriateness of life sentences for people who you know are not yet adults. But it wasn't it wasn't a blanket um, uh, ban on the idea that some people might deserve, as you point out, uh, life sentences for crimes they committed as, uh, as juveniles. Um, and so right. I think there's sometimes some confusion about, about, uh, about what the court was actually saying there. Um, that's right. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, I, I appreciate the call, uh, and the questions. Uh, Dana, I want to talk a little about, uh, the controversy that surrounds civil rights department director, Augustin Arbelu. Uh, he said yesterday he's going to take a leave of absence after growing calls for his resignation for some offensive comments that he has made. Uh, the governor has been putting pressure on the commission to fire him. Uh, what are your thoughts about that situation? Well, I I will just say this, you know, we do have a conflict wall uh, on this particular matter as well. Um, So my office has been advising the the Civil Rights Commission. um, And, you know, I think they're making a decision as to whether or not they want to disclose that advice. The the fact is, it's attorney-client privilege from my office, and my office can't disclose that, but certainly the commission could if they want to in terms of the evaluation that was made. Um, But, you know, that being the case... um, there have been a few misrepresentations that have been made. And, um, 
you know, the the commission does have the ability, if they choose to, mm-hmm. the commission does have the ability to terminate the director um, at will. I mean, he's an unclassified employee, and he serves at the pleasure of the commission. Uh, and they don't just have to evaluate uh, the particular employment offense uh, at issue uh, and and the report that was generated in, in July of this year. Um, so, you know, they, they can do that if they wish to. Uh, I know that the governor has made her feelings clear about this, and, and she, I know, would like to see that. Uh, I know that she's sort of issued the edict that he's going to be excluded from cabinet meetings because she feels so strongly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't, I, I don't have a, a personal opinion on this at this point that I, um, that I want to share because I am advising the governor, um, and, you know, I, I am her attorney in this sense, so it, it should be up for to the governor to um, to indicate what her feelings are, and I think she's made her feelings pretty well known. Hmm. Okay, uh, and lastly, tomorrow in Grand Rapids, a judge is going to hear oral arguments in a case that's filed against your office because of a settlement that withholds state dollars from faith-based adoption agencies that refuse to work with same-sex couples. These agencies say that uh, they're going to close their doors as a result, leaving fewer adoption agencies in the state. Uh, what's your What's your response to that argument? Well, first of all, that's, it, it, it involves very few children that go into the foster care children in terms of these particular agencies. And in fact, Bethany Christian, um, who was one of the larger uh, adoption agencies that dealt with some um, wards of the state, that were up for adoption, they changed their policies altogether. Um, and what they decided to do is to say that they would not discriminate any longer against same-sex couples or LGBTQ individuals that sought to adopt as long as they met all the other qualifications uh, as any other prospective adoptive parent. Um, the settlement that we entered into with the Dumont case uh, involving uh, the ACLU earlier this year, simply it involved enforcing the same contracts that all of these adoption agencies had already signed and already agreed to. They agreed not to discriminate that if they were to be provided with um, uh, the obligation to place this ward and the money, the state tax dollars um, utilized in that placement process, that they would not discriminate. Uh, they signed those contracts themselves. Nobody made them do that. So they agreed to that when uh, they entered into those provisions and those contracts. Uh, so we think that uh, that settlement was appropriate. I will say from a public policy stance, what I can tell you is this. When you don't discriminate against uh, prospective uh, adoption, uh, uh, people who want to adopt children, mm-hmm. uh, you end up with more children being adopted. Um, That's a fact. Every study that you can look at indicates that that's the case. And that's what we ought to be doing. I mean, that's the job of of the government and the Department of Health and Human Services. If if our goal is to see as many of these kids, uh, our most vulnerable children in the state, right? Um, If if we want to see them in their forever homes and loving, nurturing homes with parents that can be theirs forever, we have to do everything in our power to make certain that we're not discriminating against people based on on sexual orientation or gender identity or any other factor at all, as long as they're loving, good parents uh, to a child. That should be what we are concerned with more than anything else. And we don't think that the the state did anything incorrect in terms of the settlement. Uh, We think it was appropriate given the contracts. 
that were signed, um, and we are very hopeful that this case will be dismissed. Okay, Attorney General Dana Nessel, it is always great to have you with us uh, to catch up on Detroit Today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. All right, up next, we're going to be joined by Shana Roth of the Michigan Public Radio Network to tell us about lawmakers returning from their summer break and whether we're going to see a roads deal or a budget deal anytime soon. Stay with us on Detroit Today.